If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 17 as we continue in our study of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 17. My guess is that most of the things that you talk about, most of the things that I talk about throughout the week are ordinary. We talk about where we ate, we talk about uh, what we did over the weekend, we talk about things we did at work. Most of the things that we post on social media, on Facebook, they are not grand, extraordinary moments for the most part. They're ordinary. Uh, So maybe this weekend you went to the game and you posted a picture of yourself with your family at the game, and that feels significant and extraordinary to you, but of course, thousands of other people went to the game, right? So you can scroll through your Facebook feed and see all of these other people who went to the game. And so for you, it's significant, but in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively ordinary, right? Even those moments that we view as deeply significant to our own lives are, in the big picture of things, pretty ordinary, right? So you have a new family member, perhaps, join. You have a baby, and you're excited about that baby, and you post pictures of that baby on Facebook, and people are excited for you. You're excited. You don't uh, see someone's baby pictures and write, uh, did you know that there were 300,000 other babies born today? So big deal, right? People don't do that. Okay. Uh, when your child begins to walk, you post uh, maybe a video of them taking their first steps and other people hopefully don't say, look, we all walk. Okay. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. Okay. Because to you, that moment is extraordinary. That event is extraordinary. Maybe you have been in a situation where a, an otherwise ordinary moment turns into an extraordinary one, at least in your eyes. Maybe a dinner with your spouse turns into a deeply impactful conversation for the future of your relationship. Uh, Maybe when you were in college, you went to a study group thinking it was going to be a normal study group and you met your spouse. Maybe you've had a moment where you sat down on an airplane and looked over and there was a celebrity next to you and all of a sudden an ordinary plane ride turned into something special. Right? All of us have had those types of moments. And for those of us who know Jesus, if we pay attention to those moments, what they really ought to remind us of is the reality that there isn't any such thing as simply an ordinary moment. There isn't any such thing as simply an ordinary person. The early church recognized that. The first century church lived under the reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything so that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof to them that God was working in the world, that he had entered into the world through the person of Jesus. And because of his resurrection, they now carried a message that had the potential to impact every person and every situation in which they found themselves so that as they moved throughout their lives, even in those moments that would otherwise seem insignificant, they were on mission because they saw that every single person around them was an eternal being with the potential of knowing God through Jesus Christ and having eternal life. So they had a tendency to see the eternal realities behind ordinary circumstances. 
As we look at Acts chapter 17, that is the essence of what we see in the way that Paul responds to people in Athens. Paul is really in a situation where he's just waiting for some friends to show up. He had been in Thessalonica and then in Berea, and he had fled from Berea because there was increasing persecution and out of concern for his life. He left Berea, he went to Athens, but his friends Timothy and Silas are still back in Berea. So Paul went to Athens and he's just kind of waiting for them. It is an event that really could have lacked any significance because it's an in-between time. You think about those in-between times in our lives, maybe when you're waiting in line at the grocery store. What is your objective? Your objective is not to minister often to those around you in the line at the grocery store. Your objective is to find the fastest line and get out as quick as possible. And I talked to somebody after the first service who told me that earlier this week he had to wait in line for an hour and a half at the post office, right? That is a in-between moment for most of us, and nobody in the room wants to be there. What do we do in those types of situations when it seems that it's a moment that is ripe for wasting? Do we recognize the people around us? Do we take advantage of the moment in which God has placed us to potentially be an ambassador for Jesus Christ? That's the way that the early church lived their lives because after the resurrection of Jesus, they saw that there was not time to waste and there were not people who didn't matter. And that's the essence of Acts chapter 17. We're going to see how Paul approaches this situation where he's really in an in-between time, and it will call us to consider, do we notice and engage with the people in our lives in real ways that are consistent with the message of the good news that we carry? So look with me at Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So the first thing that Paul demonstrates for us in Acts 17 is this. Every person matters. Now, like I said, Paul is in a place where he's just waiting. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive. And as he's waiting there in Athens, what happens is he starts to look around. Now, Athens would have been a great place simply to go sightseeing. It still is such a place, and it was in the ancient world. There were temples, and there were all sorts of magnificent structures. And he could have said, you know what? I got a couple of weeks to burn. I'm just going to see the sights, pull out my you know, Fodor's guidebook or whatever it is, and walk through first century Athens. But what happens to Paul is he begins to look around, And he notices, it says in the uh, Greek that the city is essentially under idols. It's full of idols. Uh, Xenophon, a 5th century BC philosopher, actually said that Athens, in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. 
Right? And what he means by this is everywhere you look, the buildings were decorated with images of the Greek pantheon of Zeus and Apollo and all of these Greek gods. There were statues of gods everywhere you looked. He's not exaggerating very much to say you could not walk down the street without bumping into a god. And so Paul looks around and he notices these people that are under the weight of their idols. And it says his spirit is agitated. It's provoked within him because he recognizes that these are men and women made in the image of God who are walking toward an eternity without him because they don't know him. And so they build their gods in an attempt to connect with the divine, but they've completely missed the boat. And so Paul looks at these men and women and feels compassion for them. C.S. Lewis said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You see that? He says there's no such thing as an ordinary person, as a person who does not matter. And the question that Acts 17 raises for us is, do you and I look around and notice the men and women in our path that God has placed there for us to impact? It is not uncommon, to to brag on my wife for just a moment, it is not uncommon for me to go to the grocery store or to a restaurant and have people look at me and go, hey, how are you doing? I know who you are. You are Shannon's husband, right? It happens to me on a regular basis, and I, you know, that's my surname, Matt Shannon's husband, right? Because all around town, she will develop relationships with the checker at the grocery store, with the person who serves the food at the fast food restaurant, with men and women that, frankly, I'm often tempted to ignore or see as a means to an end. But she has a knack, and I think Paul had a knack for looking around and seeing the faces and the hearts of the people who were around and recognizing these are human beings who need Jesus. When we're in those in-between times, what is the natural response for many of us? Well, often in this day and age, we retreat into a screen And we often don't pull our eyes up and just simply see the people around us. Some of us are introverted enough that we go to public places and we put in headphones just to communicate, I don't want to talk to you. Do we look up and recognize that the people around us, at work, in our neighborhoods, in the places we go, are men and women made in the image of God? As Paul sees that then, that pushes him to move to the next level of conversation with these men and women. And so he begins to share the gospel. 
in the synagogue with Jewish people as well as some of the God-fearing Greeks, and word begins to spread. And there are a couple of groups that begin to talk to him. One, it says, is the Epicureans. The Epicureans were uh, probably closest to what we would call atheists. They believed that if there were gods out there, those gods were uninvolved in the life of the world, that the gods didn't really care about people, and so people shouldn't really care about the gods. And so they were cynical about the divine. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that the spark of the divine resided inside each of us. And so we had to try to access that spark of the divine through the way that we live. They might be described today as followers of the religion of Oprah, right? That everybody has a little bit of the divine and the good inside. That was the Stoics. Neither of them were monotheists. Neither of them knew God. And so they begin to talk with Paul. And as they talk with him, they go, he's saying some new things. So they bring him to the Areopagus, which met on a hill outside of Athens. And all they did was talk about religious matters. The Areopagus was like a council where they talked about religion. They bring Paul there and they say, tell them what you've been telling us. And so Paul begins to speak to the religious council of perhaps the most religious city in the ancient world, all because he noticed these people and took the opportunity to talk to them. And so he's going to have this opportunity to share the good news of Jesus in the city of Athens. And so continue with me in our passage, starting in verse 22, Acts 17, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life uh, to all people and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So what he does, Paul begins by looking around. He says, I notice that you have an altar to an unknown God. Now we know, in fact, that the Athenians had these types of altars. They have been discovered today and they would just engrave on it to an unknown God, the God that we don't know about. And Paul looks at it and says, okay, you have an altar to an unknown God because you don't know the one true God. Here's what they did is they would just offer sacrifices kind of at random, just in case there's a God out there who is upset with us that we need to appease. We may not even know what we've done. Right? It reminds me of the story I read about the man who said to his friend, you know, every morning at breakfast, I apologize to my wife. And his friend said, well, why do you apologize to her every morning at breakfast? And the man said, I never know at breakfast time, but by the time I go to bed, I know what I've done wrong, right? So I throw out an apology just to cover my bases. That's what the Athenians were doing. We'll offer sacrifices 
just to cover our bases, just in case we have somehow offended a God we've never heard of. And so Paul says, I notice you're religious. You have this altar to an unknown God. Here's what I want you to know about the true God. He has revealed himself to us. We know exactly who he is. We know exactly what he's done and what he wants from us. And in fact, none of us are here at random and none of us interact with God at random so that Paul will be able to say, not only do you matter, but the circumstances of your life have purpose because there is a God who has created the world and he rules heaven and earth. And in fact, he goes on to say, he has established the boundaries of the nations and the places where you're supposed to live precisely for this reason so that you and I would reach out for him, would grope for him and maybe find him. And what Paul says is that God has placed you where he wants you to be so you can hear about Jesus. Because every person matters and our circumstances have purpose. It is not an accident where you were born. It is not an accident where you live. Right? And Paul is not preaching some sort of uh, absolute Calvinistic viewpoint that even uh, the bad things that happen, God makes them to happen so that there's no human responsibility. What Paul is actually saying is that even in the midst of the sinfulness and brokenness of the world, God never has his hands off the wheel. God is never surprised by where you are. He didn't find out that you moved to College Station when you showed up at the DMV to change your driver's license. He didn't find out this morning when you were driving here that this is where you'd be today. Paul says, God has arranged the universe. So men and women can know him. So you can reach for him and find him. That particular verse from Acts 17 has become a a critical and important one to my family. Because about five years ago, uh, when my son was born, on the day we went into the hospital, uh, my wife was uh, in sort of the surgery preparation room uh, where she was getting ready to go and have our son. And uh, I went out of the room to go get her a drink. And as I was walking back to the room, um, I walked by a neonatologist who had helped us with a couple of issues with our second child, with our middle daughter. And I recognized him. He uh, is not a Christian man, uh, not from the United States, and in fact was a a believer in Hinduism, a polytheistic religion. Uh, I saw him in the hallway. He and I began to talk, and I reminded him of how he had uh, met our uh, daughter when she was a little baby. And he goes, oh yeah, I think I remember her. And we talked for just a minute. And I said, "Uh, is this your shift right here? Are you here? And he said, no, I'm not normally here at this time. I just happened to come up here to check on a couple of things. And I'm going to leave in a little while. So I said, okay, good to see you. We wa- I walked on, I went to the room. My wife went into the delivery room. And when our son was born, he was unable to breathe. He was blue. They could not get a good response out of him. So they called the, whatever emergency phone they had in the room. And the doors opened. And in rushes this neonatologist I had just seen in the hallway. He came in. He puts my son on oxygen. They put him in the NICU. Uh, He got better about a week later. He's discharged, and uh, he was fine in the long run. Well, flash forward to about a year later, uh, I was called by a student organization to go participate uh, in a panel about world religions. And they said, we're going to have representatives of a bunch of different religions. Would you come and represent Christianity? And so I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So I show up at this panel and I look over and guess who is the representative for Hinduism on this panel? It's that doctor. So I walked over and I reminded him 
of how he had taken care of my son. And I said, I want to thank you because you saved his life. But I said, I know God had you at that hospital at that moment, not only to save his life, but because he wants you to know him. Because God has arranged to the circumstances of your life and mine so that you might grope for him and somehow find him. And the one true God doesn't need anything from us. And we don't have to offer sacrifices into space at random to random gods because we know who he is. So Paul says the circumstances of our lives, the fact that you are here this morning, the places you will go in your sphere of influence this week, God has you and me there so that you and I can know him and those around us can know him. Do we, like the apostles in the early church, walk through our lives with that sense of purpose? The reason that Paul does is because he knows God has made these people. He knows that circumstances have a purpose, but ultimately because he knows every person needs Jesus. He knows the message that he has is eternal and critical if men and women are going to have eternal life. Look at verses 29 to 31. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul gets up and he says, look, you you need to realize God is not like these gods that you have created because our God is a living God. And he has demonstrated that because Jesus rose from the dead. And in the past, he overlooked your ignorance. In other words, you had no way of knowing how God was going to act and who Jesus was, but now you do. And it's not that God sanctioned idolatry before Jesus arrived. You can see in the Old Testament that God has always hated idolatry. It's that the level of accountability has now increased to where there is no other way to know God other than through Jesus. Their level of of accountability has increased because the knowledge of God has burst into the world through Jesus Christ in a brand new way. Whenever there is more knowledge, there's increased responsibility. Remember when I was eight years old, I went on a photo scavenger hunt for a friend's birthday. Uh, We went to the mall, and of course, this was before digital cameras and phones, so we had uh, Polaroids, and we had a list of things we were supposed to take pictures of, and there were point values assigned to each of these different things. And so we would walk through the mall and take a picture of various items and add up the points, and whichever team had the most points would win. Well, one of the things on our list was take a picture of a pregnant woman pushing a baby stroller. So uh, we looked at the list and we were kind of trying to get all the things we needed. And as we were walking through the mall, one of our eight-year-old friends said, look, there's a pregnant woman pushing a baby stroller. So we said, this is great. So we walked up to her with the list with our Polaroid and we said, man, we're doing a photo scavenger hunt. One of the things we need to take a picture of is a pregnant woman pushing a baby stroller. Would you mind posing for this photo for us? And she looked at us and she said, I'm not pregnant. She was gracious and she said, but my friend is pregnant. And so maybe she'll come over and hold the stroller and take a picture. So that's what we did. But why was she gracious with us? Because we were eight, 
right? We didn't know better. You can't get away with it when you're 38 or 48, right? As an adult, you know that you do not ask a woman if she's pregnant ever unless you actually see the baby coming out of her body, right? That's the rule of thumb. So you never ask that question because you now know you have more knowledge and understanding and so you are held accountable in a way that an eight-year-old is not. That's what Paul is getting at. Now that Jesus has entered into the world, everything has changed so that he will say in Acts uh, that you all are in a position where God is calling all men everywhere to repent, turn away from these idols, and trust in Jesus. One of the key messages of Acts is now, through Jesus Christ, there is no other way. Look at Acts chapter 4.12. We talked about this several weeks ago. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so Paul is able to see people in an eternal light because he knows he has an eternally significant message and that as he carries that message, he is called to be in every situation, even if it seems like he's just waiting around. He's called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ because he carries an eternal message. God is pushing him all the time to see the eternal realities behind otherwise ordinary circumstances because there's no other way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all-time moment in which God said, I am here in the midst of creation bringing saving life to all who trust in me. And because of his burden for these men and women, Paul brings that message. And so he recognizes, yeah, all people need Jesus. Every person matters. Every circumstance has purpose. Every person needs Jesus, and that drives Paul's mission. And he, he, he will recognize every Christian who carries this message has this mission. Finish out the passage on verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul had just proclaimed that a day is coming in which God is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. So he says, I know what's going to happen to all of us, that there will be this judgment we will face. And because he knows the future, he feels compelled all the way through his ministry to keep proclaiming the gospel, even when, as we see, only a few people believe. Paul never gives up. He never stops because it is worth it to him to proclaim the gospel message, even if people sneer, even if people walk away, even if people disbelieve, because there are a few whom God will call. Paul says, I know what's going to happen, and I want to equip you for what's going to happen. Think about it in this way. Those of you who have children, from the time you began to announce that you were going to have a child, there were people in your, your life who took it upon themselves to prepare you, right? To give you advice and input. So they would say things like, make sure you store up your sleep now over the next six or seven months, as if you could do that with sleep, like store it like chipmunks store acorns because you won't sleep much. Or they would say, go on a quiet vacation now because the judgment day is coming and you will never go again. There are classes to prepare you for childbirth where they essentially will say, just don't forget to breathe because it hurts so much. 
and they get you ready for the moment that is coming because they say, I have seen what's in your future and I want you to be prepared. That's the mission that Paul sees himself on. He says the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a guarantee that Jesus is coming back and all who trust in him will be with him forever. But he will judge those who don't know him. And so this is your moment. And that drives his mission. And of course, Paul would have known about the words Jesus had given to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This message drove the ministry of the disciples because they had the gospel. This mission drove them because of the message they carried. They believed deeply in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his bodily return for his people. And so within just a few generations, the gospel spread across the ancient world. You and I, every day, in the situations that we are in, we carry this message at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, in our community, as we shop, as we eat, as we run across people who seem like they're simply ships passing us in the night. We're called to look up and see the eternal reality that every person you meet, every person I meet, needs this message. And to recognize even the eternal reality that all of the earth needs to know the name of Jesus and will. And prior to the judgment, prior to the return of Jesus, our mission is to spread his name far and wide. That's why we as a church for the last 50 years have seen it as our mission as a church. Not only to engage the campus of Texas A&M and Blinn, but to raise up leaders who will go out all over the world to proclaim the name of Jesus. And so that's what we do. That's what we strive for. Because we carry an eternal message, we are tasked with an eternally significant mission. And the question is, will you and I begin this week simply by praying that God will open our eyes to the spiritual realities around us? By praying that we will simply look up and notice people and then begin conversations, begin to engage even when it's uncomfortable, If you're a more introverted personality like I am, that may be particularly uncomfortable. And yet God is calling all of us simply to notice, to pray, and then to engage. Those who need to know the name of Jesus Christ. Because we carry this eternally impactful message, we're called to an eternally significant mission to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ in every sphere of influence in every place we find ourselves because God has arranged the habitations of the world and the circumstances of the world so people can find him. Would you pray with me?
Father, we're so grateful for your word. And I pray that our hearts would feel convicted through your spirit to notice those that we interact with every day and to bring to them the message of the good news that your son Jesus is alive and will return. And you now offer opportunity for everybody who will trust in him to have eternal life. We thank you for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.